Hi, everybody. Carla here, welcoming you back to Carla Reads the Classics for another reading I have for you today, Ernest Gaines, A Lesson Before Dying, Part 2. Please stay tuned. Do you know what is going to happen to someone just like you who sat right where you're sitting only a few years ago? All right, I'll tell you. They're going to kill him and Bayonne. They're going to sit him in a chair. They're going to tie him down with straps. They're going to connect wires to his head, to his wrists, to his legs. And they're going to shoot electricity through the wires into his body until he's dead. I looked across the room at them. Some stared back at me, others down at the floor, but they were all listening. They knew Jefferson was supposed to die in the electric chair, but they hadn't known how this would happen. It had not been explained to them so vividly before, and maybe not at all. I could see how painful it was for most of them to hear this, but I did not stop. Do you know what his Nanan wants me to do before they kill him? The public defender called him a hog, and she wants me to make him a man. Within the next few weeks, maybe a month, whatever the law allows, make him a man. Exactly what I'm trying to do here with you now, to make you responsible young men and young ladies. But you, you prefer to play with bugs. You refuse to study your arithmetic. You, you prefer writing slanted sentences instead of straight ones. Does that make any sense? Well, does it? No one answered. Most averted their eyes. I noticed that the girl whom I had criticized at the blackboard had lowered her head and was crying. Estelle, leave the class if you can't control yourself, I ordered her. She shook her head, but she did not get up or look at me. I'm, I'm all, all right, Mr. Mr. Wiggins, but, but, but that's my cousin. I knew that Jefferson was her cousin, but I didn't apologize for what I had said, nor did I show any sympathy for her crying. Either leave the class or stop crying, I told her again. She wiped her eyes, but she did not look up. All right, the rest of the morning for studying, I told them. And you'd better study because I'm testing everybody this afternoon. At two o'clock, I was at the blackboard with my fifth graders when we heard a knocking on the front door. I told the boy nearest the door to see who it was and asked him to come in. The boy went to the door and came back alone. He said that it was Mr. Farrell Giroux, but Mr. Farrell didn't want to come in. I told the class to go on with their work and I went to the door to see what he wanted. Farrell Giroux was a small light brown skinned man in his late fifties. He wore an old felt hat, a khaki suit, and worn work shoes. He was the yard man and all-around handyman for Henry Pichot. He fixed and sharpened tools for the big house, and he served as carpenter for the people in the quarter. He had made more benches, fixed more chairs and steps than you could number. He took off his hat as I approached him. He had known me all my life, and he knew my aunt and all my people before me. But since I had gone off to the university and returned as a teacher, he treated me with great respect. I went down the steps and into the yard. Professor, Mr. Farrell, he say it'd be all right if you come up by five this evening. Is this about Jefferson? I asked. Didn't tell me. Just say it'd be all right if you come up there about five. 
Thank you, Mr. Farrell. My pleasure, Professor, he said. He put on his hat and I noticed his eyes. He knew why Henry Pichot wanted me up there all right, but Henry Pichot had not thought it was necessary to tell him. At his age, he was still only a messenger to run errands. To learn anything, he had to attain it by stealth or through an innate sense of things around him. He nodded to me, knowing that I knew he knew why Henry Pichot wanted to see me. And he walked away, head down. Six. Inez was in the kitchen when I came up to the back stairs, and she opened the door before I had a chance to knock. I could tell she had been crying. She had wiped the tears from her cheeks, but I could see the marks under her eyes. How are you, Inez? I'm making out, she said, not looking at me. You know why he sent for me? Mr. Sam coming here at five. I glanced at my watch. It was ten minutes to five. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Inez asked. No, thanks. You want to sit down? She still did not look at me. I'm all right. I don't mind standing. I remembered how my aunt and Miss Emma had stood had stood the night before. I don't know, Inez said, shaking her head. I just don't know. Now Mr. Lewis is in there trying to get a bet. A bet on what? She looked at me directly for the first time. She had large eyes, brown and kind. I could see traces of tears that she had tried wiping away. You can't get him ready to die. Henry Pichot didn't take the bet, did he? I left him in there talking. Mr. Lewis said he got a whole case of whiskey he can bet on. Henry Pichot? He ain't betting against you. He ain't betting on you neither. Smart man. Inez looked at me sadly. I didn't know if it was because of my cynicism or the task I had facing me. She went back to the stove. With a dish towel, she had lifted the lid off of one of the pots, and I could smell a strong scent of onion, bell pepper, and garlic. She raised the lids on the other pots, but still the odor of the onions, pepper, and garlic pervaded the room. Inez left the kitchen. I heard her knock on the library door, and I could hear her and Henry Pichot talking. Then she came back into the kitchen. How's Lou? she asked me. She's all right, I said. I left her there with Miss Emma. I thought about them sitting, sitting at the kitchen table at Miss Emma's house. I had gone home after school to drop off my satchel, and when I did not find my aunt at home, I figured she was keeping Miss Emma company. I found them at the kitchen table, shelling pecans into two big aluminum pans. I could see that neither my aunt nor Miss Emma had any intention of going up to Henry Pichot's house with me. But if you need me to hold your hand, I'd be glad to go, my aunt said. I don't want him doing nothing he don't want to do. Miss Emma repeated the old refrain I had heard about a hundred times the day before. I didn't answer them. I was angry already, and I knew things would just have gotten worse if I had said anything else. I went back outside and got into my car and drove up to Pichot's. Now I looked at my watch again. It was, it was 5.15. No Sam Guidry and no one else except Inez had come into the kitchen to say anything to me. Each time she returned from the library, Inez seemed more agitated. I knew she was feeling sorry for me. 
At 5.30, we heard people entering the house off the front gallery. Inez left the kitchen to meet them. She spoke to Edna Guidry, then to Sam Guidry, and to one or two other people. I could hear them talking as they came into the house. Inez returned to the kitchen with two empty glasses to be freshened. She added four glasses to her tray. She took that to the library and came back. I'm sure it won't be long now, she said. She knew how I felt, and she was trying to encourage me. It was quarter to six. At six o'clock, Edna Guidry came back into the kitchen, a tall woman in her early fifties, and she had light brown hair, a narrow face, and gray eyes. She wore a shapeless black dress, gray stockings, and low-heeled black shoes. Well, Grant, Grant, how are you? She said, smiling and coming up with me, and coming up to me with her hand out. She stopped a good distance back, and I had to lean forward to shake her hand, which was long and bony and cold from her glass. Why, Grant, she said, I just do declare I haven't seen you in God knows how long. Been two, three years, I'm sure. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say? About that long, Miss Edna, I said. God, yes, she said. Why, you're looking just as fine like you're living the good life. Doesn't he, Inez? He's looking just fine, Miss Edna, Inez said from the stove. Well, tell me all about yourself, Edna Guidry said to me. How have you been? No, no need to tell me. I can see you're doing just fine. But how is Lou? Why doesn't she come to see me? It's been how long now? Oh, I bet, I bet you it's been six, no, eight months. And living so close. You tell Lou, I say, make you bring her to my house so we can sit down and talk. Lord have mercy, do. She turned from me to Inez. Mr. Henry says you may serve any time now, Inez. Yes, ma'am, Inez said. Edna turned back to me. Grant, please tell Emma how sorry I am about Jefferson. I would do it myself, but I'm just too broken up over this matter. I, I ran into Madame Grope just the other day. Lord, how sad she looks, just dragging along, poor old thing. I had to put my arms round her. Edna drank from her glass. Tell Emma, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for both families. I hear, I hear you would like the privilege of visiting Jefferson. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'll leave all that up to you and the sheriff, she said. He'll talk to you after supper. She turned to Inez. Inez, is there anything that I may help you with? No, I got everything under control. Inez told her. Well, in that case, I may as well help myself to another quick shot. She poured about two ounces of bourbon into her glass and added ice cubes. After drinking half of it, she went back to the library. Inez dished up the food. She had cooked a pot roast with potatoes and carrots, onion, bell pepper, and garlic. She also had rice and mustard greens, green peas, and cornbread. She took the platters and bowls to the dining room. Can I fix you something? She asked me when she came back to the kitchen. No, thank you, I told her. I was hungry. I hadn't eaten anything but a sandwich since breakfast, but I would not eat at Henry Pichot's kitchen table. I had come through that back door against my will, and it seemed that he and the sheriff were doing everything they could to humiliate me even more by making me wait on them. Well, I had to put up with that because of, of those in the quarter, but I damn sure would not add hurt to injury by eating at his kitchen table. 
Inez went to the dining room and came back. They talking up there now about him, she said. Cheryl saying he don't like the idea at all, saying nobody can make that thing a man, saying might as well let him go like he is. I hope that's his final word, I said. It sure would relieve my mind. Why don't you sit down, Inez said. You'll feel better. I'd rather stand. You sure I can't fix you a little something to eat? No, thank you, Inez. She went and came back. It won't be long now, she said. They nearly threw. Soon as I serve the coffee. You sure I can't get you a cup of coffee? No, thanks. I appreciate it, though. She poured coffee into half a dozen small white cups and took the coffee, sugar, and cream to the dining room on a silver tray. She came back. He asked me if you were still here, she said. I think, I think he gonna let you see him, but he say he's still against it. I'm sure it's Miss Edna making him do it. Well, all the time Miss Edna done spent with this family, they ain't asking too much. At a quarter to seven, Inez cleared off the table in the dining room and brought the dishes into the kitchen. Then she took a bottle of brandy back with her. A half hour later, she was putting away the dishes she had just finished washing. Sam Guidry, Henry Pichot, Louis Rogon, and another fat man came into the kitchen. I had been standing there nearly two and a half hours. Sam Guidry was a tall man, well over six feet, and he was well tanned. His hair was dark brown, his sideburns and mustache showed some gray. His face was narrow, well-lined, and strong. His hands were large and hairy. He wore a brown suit and a tie. He usually wore a Stetson hat and cowboy boots. He had probably left the hat in the library or the dining room, but he had the boots on. The four white men split into pairs. Sam Guidry and Henry Pichot stood on one side of the table while Louis Ragone and the fat man stood over by the dish cabinet. They had brought their drinks with them. Inez left the kitchen as soon as the white men came in. I tried to decide just how I should respond to them, whether I should act like the teacher that I was or like the nigger that I was supposed to be. I decided to wait and see how the conversation went. To show too much intelligence would have been an insult to them. To show a lack of intelligence would have been a greater insult to me. I decided to wait and see how the conversation would go. Been waiting long? Sam Guidry asked me. About two and a half hours, sir, I said. I was supposed to say not long and I was supposed to grin, but I didn't do either. The fat man glanced knowingly at Louis Ragon, but Louis Ragon was looking directly at me. I could see in their faces that they had talked all this over and Sam Guidry had already made up his mind what he was going to do. What can I do for you? He asked. Louis Ragon and the fat man waited for my answer. I knew it didn't matter what I said since Guidry had made up his mind. Henry Pichot, standing next to Guidry, looked more tired than he had the day before. He seemed more sympathetic. Maybe... He had been thinking about all the services Miss Emma had provided for his family over the years. It's about Jefferson, Sheriff Guidry, I said. I knew they had discussed it still. I had to go through the motions. His nanan would like for me to visit him. What for? Guidry asked. 
They had discussed this too. I could tell from the way the fat man drank from his glass. I could see in his face that he was amused. So was Louis Ragon. I knew that they were both betting against me. She's old, I said. She doesn't feel that she has the strength to come up here all the time. She doesn't, huh? Sam Guidry asked me. He emphasized doesn't. I was supposed to have said don't. I was being too smart. Yes, sir, I said. She doesn't feel that she can. I used the word doesn't again, but I did it intentionally this time. If he had said I was being too smart and he didn't want me to come to that jail, my mind would definitely have been relieved. What about that preacher in the quarter? Can't he visit him? I asked her the same thing. You did, huh? Yes, sir. And what did she say? She said there'll be time for the preacher. She did, huh? Yes, sir. So she feels that he has much time, time for teacher and preacher? The fat man grunted. Louis Ragone's eyes showed that he was amused. Henry Pichot, next to Sam Guidry, looked uncomfortable. What do you plan on doing when you come up, when you come up there, if I let you come up there? Guidry asked me. I have no idea, sir, I told him. You're not trying to play with me now, are you? Guidry asked. No, sir, I'm not, but I have no idea what I'll talk to him about. I hear from people around here you want to make him a man. A man for what at this time? She asked me to go to him, sir. Her idea, not mine. That was not the question, Guidry said. Make him a man for what? To die with some dignity, I suppose. I suppose that's what she wants. You think that's a good idea? That's what she wants, sir. What do you think? I would rather not have anything to do with it, sir, but that's what she wants. So you think he ought to just go like he is? I don't know how he is, sir, believe me. Mr. Guidry, if it was left up to me, I wouldn't have anything to do with it at all, I said. You and I are in accord there, he said, but my wife thinks different. Now, which one of you, which one you think is right, me or her? The fat man snorted. He thought Guidry had me. I make it a habit never to get into family business, Mr. Guidry. The fat man didn't like that quick maneuver. I could see it in his face. You're smart, Guidry said. Maybe you're just a little too smart for your own good. I was quiet. I knew when to be quiet. I don't like it, Guidry said, and I want you to know I don't like it, because I think the only thing you can do is just aggravate him, trying to put something in his head against his will, and I'd rather see a contented hog go to that chair than an aggravated hog. It would be better for everybody concerned. There ain't a thing you can put in that skull that ain't there already. I remained quiet. You can come up there, Sam Guidry said. But the first sign of, aggra of aggravation, I'm calling it off. You understand? Yes, sir. You have any questions? He asked me. Yes, sir. When can I see him? You can come anytime you like. Not before 10 in the morning, not after 4 in the evening. Any other questions? Any idea how much time he has left? That's entirely up to the governor, not me, Guidry said. But I wouldn't plan on a diploma, 
okay? The fat man and Louis Ragone seem impressed by the sheriff's questions and answers to me. Louis Ragone, who had light blue eyes, stared at me to make me look back at him, but I refused to pay him that courtesy. The fat man, drinking, rattled the ice cubes in his glass. Henry Pichot appeared to wish all this was over with. Anything else? Guidry asked me. When can I start coming up there? Not for a couple of weeks, Guidry said. Let's get him used to it. Report to Chief Deputy Clark if I'm not around. Don't bring anything up there you don't want taken away from you. Knife, razor blade, anything made of glass. Not that I expect him to do anything, but you can never be sure. Anything else? No, sir. Nothing else. Guidry nodded. Good luck, but I think it's all just a waste of time. Thank you, sir. I waited until they had left the kitchen. Then I went out to my car and drove away. Seven. Two things happened at the school during the weeks before I visited Jefferson in jail. The superintendent of schools made his annual visit, and we got our first load of wood for the winter. We heard on Monday by Pharrell Giraud, who had gotten the news from Henri Pichot, that the superintendent was going to visit us sometime during the week, but we didn't know what day or time. I told my students to take baths each morning and wear their best clothes to school. After the Pledge of Allegiance in the yard and the recitation of Bible verses inside the church, I would send a student back outside to look out for the superintendent. If he saw a car, any car, turn off the highway down into the quarter, he or she was supposed to run inside and tell me. The superintendent didn't show up until Thursday. By then, we had had many false alarms. The minister of the church, who didn't live in the quarter, had made a couple of visits to the church members. A doctor had come once. A midwife had visited a young woman twice. An insurance man had shown up. A bill collector from a furniture store had appeared. Henri Pichot had driven through the quarter at least once each day, and family and friends of people in the quarter had also visited. On Thursday, just before two o'clock, the boy I had watching for cars ran into the church. Another one, Mr. Wiggins, another one. All right, I said to the class. Keep those books opened and look sharp. I passed my fingers over my shirt collar and checked the knot in my necktie. I felt my jacket to be sure both flaps were outside the pockets. I had three suits, navy blue, gray, and brown. I had on the blue one today. In the yard, I passed the tips of my shoes over the backs of my pant legs. Now I was ready to receive our guest. This time, it was the superintendent. He stopped his car before the door of the church. A thick cloud of gray dust flew over the top of the car and down into the quarter. The superintendent was a short, fat man with a large red face and a double chin, and he needed all his energy to get out of the car. Dr. Joseph, I said. Hmm, stifling, he said. I thought it was a little cool myself, but I figured that anyone as heavy as he was must have felt stifled all the time. He wheezed his way across the shallow ditch that separated the road from the churchyard. He looked up at me, but I could tell he didn't remember my name, though he had visited the school once each year since I had been teaching there. Grant Wiggins, I said. How are you, Higgins? Wiggins, sir, I said. I'm fine. Well, I'm not, he said. 
all this running around, more schools to attend. Dr. Joseph visited the colored schools once a year, the white schools probably twice, once each semester. There were a dozen schools in the parish to visit, if that many. We're honored that you took the time for us, sir. He grunted and looked around the yard. There was a good breeze coming in from the direction of the cane fields, and it wavered the flag on the pole in the yard. Place looks about the same, Dr. Joseph said. Things change very slowly around here, Dr. Joseph, I said. Hmm, he said. I motioned for him to precede me into the church. He needed all his strength to go up the three wooden steps, and as he entered the doorway, I heard Irene Cole, the sixth-grade student in charge, call out to the class, Rise! Shoulders back! I followed Dr. Joseph down the aisle, and on either side of us, the students from primer through sixth grade stood as still and as straight as soldiers for inspection. I nodded toward my desk for Dr. Joseph to take my chair. He grunted, which meant thanks, and pulled the chair farther from the desk before he sat down. He needed the extra distance for comfort. Irene was watching me all the time, and when I nodded to her, she called out to the classes, seats, and the whole school sat as one. We had been rehearsing this morning and afternoon for the past three days. Students, I'm sure you all know Dr. Joseph Morgan, I told them. Dr. Joseph is our superintendent of schools here in St. Raphael Parish. He has taken time out of his very busy schedule to visit us for a few minutes. Please respond loudly. Thank you, Dr. Joseph, which they did loudly. Dr. Joseph acknowledged their greeting. Hmm. Dr. Joseph, we're at your service, I said, and sat down on one of the benches against the wall. Dr. Joseph leaned back in the chair, and still his large stomach nearly touched the edge of the table. He looked over the classes from one side of the aisle to the other, as though he was trying to catch someone doing something improper. Primer, on your feet, he said. They stood up, seven or eight of them. Dr. Joseph looked them over for a moment, then he told the little girl at the end to come forward. She took a deep breath and looked at the girl standing beside her before coming up to the desk. She was afraid, but she came up quickly and, and stood before the table with her little arms tight to her sides. She would not look up. Nothing to be afraid of, child, Dr. Joseph said to her. What is your name? Gloria Hebert, she said. I can't hear you if you keep your head down, Dr. Joseph told her. She looked up timidly. Gloria Hebert. That's a pretty name, Dr. Joseph said. Hold out your hands. He must have thought she had said or done something wrong because as she held her hands out across the table, palms up, I could see them trembling. Turn them over, Dr. Joseph told her. She did. Uh-huh, he said. Relax. She did not know what he wanted her to do. Lower your arms, child, Dr. Joseph said. She brought her arms back to her sides and lowered her eyes as well. Did you say your Bible verse this morning, Gloria? Yes, sir, Dr. Joseph. Well, what did you say? He asked her. I said, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Dr. Joseph. Hmm, Dr. Joseph said. Seems I've heard that one before, but you're a bright little girl. You tell your folks Dr. Joseph said they ought to be proud of you. 
Go back to your seat. Thank you, Dr. Joseph, she said, bowing and turning away quickly. She smiled as she faced forward again, but no one else was smiling. Primers, take your seats, Dr. Joseph said. First graders, on your feet. And he called on the one boy in class who I wished had stayed home today. He was without doubt the worst child in school. He came from a large family, 13, 14, 15, I don't know how many, and he had to fight for every crumb of food he got. At school, he did the same. He fought if he played marbles. He fought if he played ball. He fought if he played hide-and-go-seek. He fought if he played hide-and-switch. In class, he fought with those who sat in front of him, beside him, behind him. I had punished him as much during the last month as I had all the other children put together. Dr. Joseph asked his name, and he ran together three words even I couldn't understand. His name was Lewis Washington, Jr., but what he said didn't sound anything like that. Your hands, Dr. Joseph told him. The hands had been cleaned an hour before, I was sure, because I had checked each pair when the students came in from dinner. But now the palms of those same hands were as black and grimy as if he had been pitching coal all day. Did you pledge allegiance to the flag this morning? Dr. Joseph asked him. Yes, sir, he said. Not yes, sir, as I had told him a hundred times to say. Yes, sir. Well, Dr. Joseph said. Want me to go outside and salute flag? The boy asked. You don't have to go outside, Dr. Joseph said. You can show me in here. The boy raised his hand to his chest. Pledge legion to the flag. Ninety state, America, er, er, yeah, which it stand, visibly, amen. Dr. Joseph grunted. Several students giggled. Dr. Joseph seemed quite satisfied. I would have to do a lot more work. For the next half hour, it continued. Dr. Joseph would call on someone who looked half right, then he would call on someone whom he felt was just the opposite. In the upper grades, fourth, fifth, and sixth, he asked grammatical, mathematical, and geographical questions. And beside looking at hands, now he began inspecting teeth. Open wide, say ah. And he would have the poor children spreading out their lips as far as they could while he peered into their mouths. At the university, I had read about slave masters who had done the same when buying new slaves. And I had read of cattlemen doing it when purchasing horses and cattle. At least Dr. Joseph had graduated to the level where he let the children spread out their own lips rather than using some kind of crude metal instrument. I appreciated his humanitarianism. Finally, when he felt that he had inspected enough mouths and hands, he gave the school a ten-minute lecture on nutrition. Beans were good, he said. Not only just good, but very, very good. Beans, beans, beans. He must have said beans a hundred times. Then he said fish and greens were good, and exercise was good. In other words, hard work was good for the young body. Picking cotton, gathering potatoes, pulling onions, working in the garden. All of that was good exercise for a growing boy or girl. Higgins, I must compliment you. You have an excellent crop of students, an excellent crop. You ought to be proud. He had said the same thing the year before, and he had called me Higgins then, too. And the year before that, he had said the same thing, but he had called me Washington then. At least he was getting closer to my real name. Rise, Irene called to the class. 
They came to their feet, their heads up, their arms clasped to their sides. But instead of feeling pride, I hated myself for drilling them as I had done. Dr. Joseph and I went down the aisle. Outside, he looked up at the flag waving on its bamboo pole in the corner of the fence. I thought for a moment the superintendent was about to salute it, but he was either too tired or too lazy to raise his hand. Doing a good job, Higgins, he said. I do the best I can with what I have to work with, Dr. Joseph, I said. I don't have all the books I need. In some classes, I have two children studying out of one book, and even with that, some of the pages in the book are missing. I need more papers to write on. I need more chalk for the blackboards. I need more pencils. I even need a bigger heater. We're all in the same shape, Higgins, he said. I didn't answer him. I said, we're all in the same shape, Higgins, the white schools just as much as the colored schools. We take what the state gives us and we make the best of it. Many of the books I have to use are hand-me-downs from the white schools, Dr. Joseph, I said, and they have missing pages. How can I... Are you questioning me, Higgins? No, sir, Dr. Joseph. I was just... Thank you, Higgins. He started to get back into his car. It was harder to do than getting out because he was upset with me now. More drill on the flag, Higgins, he said, though he rolled down the window. More emphasis on hygiene. Some of these children have never seen a toothbrush before coming to school, Dr. Joseph. Well, isn't that your job, Higgins? Yes, sir, I, I suppose so but then I would have to buy them. Can't they work? He asked me. Look at all the pecan trees. He waved his hand toward the yards. I wager you can count 50 trees right here in the quarter. Back in the field, back in the, in the pasture, you can count another 100, 200 trees. Get them off their lazy butts. They can make enough for a dozen toothbrushes in one evening. That money usually goes to helping the family, Dr. Joseph. Then you tell the family about health he said, looking out of the rolled-down window to let me know that his visit was over. I have another school to visit, all this running around enough to give a man a heart attack. He drove away. I stood there until he had turned his car around and started back up the quarter. I waved at him, but he did not wave back. 8. The week after the superintendent paid his visit to the school, we got our first load of wood for the winter. Two old men brought the wagon load about 11 o'clock that morning. We did not have a gate wide enough for the wagon to come through, so the men came into the yard next to the church. One got down off the wagon to open the gate, and the other drove the wagon into the yard. I could not see them, but I could hear them. They were joking about the mules, the wood, and the weather. One of them said, Don't let Bird hang us up in that ditch now. I don't feel like unloading all this wood way out here and I got to put on that wagon again. She'll go and pull, the other one said. Hi there, Bert. Get them shoulders in there. I heard the wagon cross the ditch and enter the yard. All right, I said to the class. The first one who looks outside will spend an hour in the corner. They can do pretty well without you. The wagon came farther into the yard on the other side of the fence passing the church windows. I could see the two mules, one big and red, the other small and dark brown with long droopy ears pulling hard into the chains. Then I saw the long poles of wood stacked high upon the wagon, with one of the old men riding atop the wood while the other, the one who had opened the gate, walked alongside the wagon. 
they were still joking and laughing. Lewis Washington, Jr., get back into that corner and face the wall. But, Mr. Wiggins, now you was looking out that window, too, now. I, I seen you. Just out of the corner of my eye, I said. Now I was just looking out of the corner of my eye, too, Mr. Wiggins. In that case, I won't punish you for looking out the window, I said. But I'm going to punish you for using bad grammar. You're supposed to say, you weren't looking out the window, Mr. Wiggins, not you was looking out the window, Mr. Wiggins. Get back in that corner and face the wall and stay there. One more word out of you, you'll spend the rest of the day standing on one leg. Sitting at my desk, I could hear the old men unloading the wood, throwing the long poles across the fence and into the churchyard. They were still kidding each other. Show me them grits, show me them grits you had this morning. I got my end up. Well, I got the heavy end. You sure got that right. They both laughed, and I heard the wood come across the fence. This went on for half an hour. Then one of the men knocked on the back door. I went to see what he wanted. Professor, he said and smiled. Henry Lewis was a short black man with hardly any teeth. His hands were the color and texture of the legs of a snapping turtle. He wore an old straw hat, a green and brown plaid shirt, khaki pants, and rubber boots. He had grandchildren in the school. Some wood there, he said. I'm leaving the saw and couple them axes. You, your boys can chop it up. Appreciate it, Mr. Lewis, I said. Glad to be of service. I spoke to Amos Thomas, who sat on the wagon. The thin brown-skinned man nodded at me. That, that ought to hold you a while, Mr. Lewis, said to me. Just, just call for it, run out. Somebody get you another load. Thanks, I said. Bye, Professor. Goodbye, Mr. Lewis, Mr. Thomas. I returned to my desk. All right, I said to the class. It's a quarter to twelve now. I'm letting you out early because you'll have to chop this wood this afternoon. I want you all back up here by twelve-thirty. That afternoon, I stood by the fence while the fifth and sixth grade boys sawed and chopped the wood. The smaller boys and all the girls were inside. They wanted to know what they wanted to know why they had to study while the other boys were outside having fun. I told them that they could have fun the next day picking picking up chips and stacking wood while the older boys were inside studying. They did not see this as quite the same. But when I didn't give them any other choice, they grudgingly relented. I gave them assignments and left Irene Cole in charge. Standing by the fence, I, I watched the five older boys saw and chop the wood. Two would saw while another would straddle the wood pole to keep it steady. The other two boys split logs and chopped up small branches with the axes. They laughed and kidded each other while they worked. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? Am I reaching them all? They are exactly, they are acting exactly as the old men did earlier. They are maybe 50 years younger, maybe more, but doing the same thing those old men did who never attended school a day in their lives. Is it just a vicious circle? Am I doing anything? After a while, they exchanged the saw and axes. The ones who had been sawing were now splitting logs, and the other two were pulling on the handles of the saw. The smallest boy still held the log as steady as he could with his hands and knees. With my back to the fence as I watched them, I remembered when it was I who had swung that axe and pulled my end of the saw. And I remembered the others, too. Bill, 
Jerry, Claudie, Smitty, Snowball, all the others. They had chopped wood here, too. Then they were gone, gone to the fields, to the small towns, to the cities, where they died. Snowball stabbed to death at a nightclub in Port Allen. Claudie killed by a woman in New Orleans. Smitty sent to the state penitentiary at Angola for manslaughter. And there were others who did not go anywhere but simply died slower. The big mulatto from Pulaya had predicted it, hadn't he? It was he, Matthew Antoine, as teacher then, who stood by the fence while we chopped wood. He had told us then that most of us would die violently, and those of us who did not would be brought down to the level of beasts. Told us that there was no other choice but to run and run, that he was living testimony of someone who should have run, that in him he did not say all of this, but we felt it. There was nothing but hatred for himself as well as contempt for us. He hated himself for the mixture of his blood and the cowardice of his being, and he hated us for daily reminding him of it. No, he did not tell us this, but daily he showed us this. As clearly as anything, he showed his hatred for himself and for us. He could teach any of us only one thing, and that one thing was flight. Because there was no freedom here. He said it, and he didn't say it, but we felt it. When, when we told our people how we felt, they told us to go back and learn all we could. There were those who did not go back to learn others who only went back. And having no place to run, they went into the fields. Others went into the small towns and cities, seeking work, and did even worse. But she told me that I would not be one of the others, that I would learn as much as he could teach me, that I would go away and learn from someone else, but that I would learn as much as he could teach me. And when he saw that I wanted to learn, he hated me even more than he did the others because I challenged him when the others did not. The others believed what he said. They went out into the fields, went into the small towns and into the cities and died. So you think you can? He said. So you think you can? No, he did not say it with words, only with his eyes. You will be the loser, my friend. Maybe he did not say friend. He probably didn't say friend. Fool, more likely. Anyway, you will be the loser, he said. Yes, I will teach you. You want to learn? I will help you learn. Maybe in that way I will be free, knowing that someone else had taken the burden. Good, good. You want to learn? Good, good. Here is the burden. Even after I had gone away for further education, on returning to the plantation to visit my aunt, I could still see the hatred in him. And after he had retired from teaching because of ill health, and I would visit him at his home in Pulaya, I would still feel his hatred for himself, for me, for the world. Once I sat at the fireplace with him. He said to me, nothing pleases me more than when I hear of something wrong. Hitler had his reasons, even the Ku Klux Klan of the South for what they do. You don't believe me, do you? He asked me. No, sir, I don't, I said. You will one day, he said. I told you what you should have done, but no, you want to stay. Well, you will believe me one day when you see that those five and a half months you spend in that church each year are just a waste of your time. You will. You will. You'll see that it'll take more than five and a half months to wipe away, peel, scrape away the blanket of ignorance that, had, that has been plastered and replastered over those brains in the past 300 years. You'll see. 
Then he would be quiet for a long time while we both stared into the fire. I'm cold, he said one day while we stood there looking into the fire. I got up and put on another piece of wood. That's no good, he said. I'll still be cold. I'll always be cold. He looked at me. You'll see. You'll see. I must, I said. No, you don't must, he said. You want to. But you don't must. You did, I said. Yes, I did, he said. But I told you not to. I told you to go. God has looked after them these past 300 years without your help. He won't. God? I said. Because I had never heard him say God before. Because when we said our Bible verses for him, he seemed to have hated every word we spoke. Sir, did I hear you say, I'm cold? He cut me off. I stay cold. You better go. Come back some other time if you like. I made a mistake. I came back a month later. I remember that it was cold that day too. Now, about that mulatto teacher and me. There was no love there for each other. There was not even respect. We were enemies, if anything, at all. He hated me, and I knew it, and he knew I knew it. I didn't like him, but I needed him, needed him to tell me something that none of the others could or would. I brought some wine that day. He sent me into the kitchen to get two glasses. This'll warm you up, I said. Nothing can warm me up, he said. He sat in the rocker, gazing down at the fire with the blanket tight around him. He was a big-boned man, but very skinny now. To flight, he said, raising his glass. But you didn't go, I said. I'm Creole, he said. Can't you tell? Was that it? I asked him. That was it, he said. I'm Creole. Do you know what a Creole is? A lying, cowardly bastard. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that, I said. I was afraid, he said, looking into the fire. I was afraid to run away. What am I? Look at me. Where else could I have felt superior to so many but here? Is that important? I asked him. It is, he said. For everyone, especially for the whites and the near whites, it is important. Do you feel superior to me? I asked him. Of course, he said. Don't be a damn fool. I am superior to you. I am superior to any man blacker than me. Is that why you hate me? I asked him. Exactly, he said. Because that superior son of a bitch out there said I am you. Do you think he is superior to you? I asked him. Of course, he said. He'll make you the nigger you were born to be. My only choice is to run then? I asked him. That was your choice, but you won't. You want to prove me wrong. Well, you'll visit my grave one day and tell me how right I was. Tell me more, I said. What's wrong with that university, he asked. Don't they tell you? They tell me how to succeed in the South as a colored man. They tell me about reading, writing, and arithmetic. I need to know about life. I can't tell you anything about life, he said. What do I know about life? I stayed here. You have to go away to know about life. There's no life here. There's nothing but ignorance here. You want to know about life? Well, it's too late. Forget it. Just go on and be the nigger you were born to be. But forget about life. You make me tired. And I'm cold. The wine doesn't help. 
I visited him again only a month or two before he died, in the winter of 42. He was 43 years old. That was my first year as a teacher. I had been teaching two or three weeks when I visited him. We had just gotten out our first load of wood for the winter. Maybe that's why I had gone to see him. I could always remember that first load of wood for winter, how we older boys had chopped the wood into smaller pieces while he stood back against the fence overseeing us. He looked terribly frail that day. I hadn't seen him in several months. He was being looked after by a relative who did not care too much for anyone visiting him, especially darker people. She admitted me into the room and left us. He sat at the fireplace. Summer or winter, he always sat at the fireplace when he was inside. We shook hands. His hand was large, cold, and bony. He was coughing a lot. We got our first load of wood last week, I told him. Nothing changes, he said. I guess I'm a genuine teacher now, I said. He nodded and coughed. He didn't seem to want to talk. Still, I sat there both of us gazing into the fire. Any advice? I asked him. It doesn't matter anymore, he said. Just do the best you can, but it won't matter. Nine. At one thirty, I left school to take Miss Emma into Bayonne. She came out on the porch with Tante Lou and she had a basket hung over one arm and a handbag in the other hand. Tante Lou closed the door to keep the heat in the room, and she and Miss Emma came down the walk and out to the car. Miss Emma wore her brown overcoat with the rabbit fur around the collar and cuffs. Tante Lou wore only a sweater, so I figured she was not going to Bayonne with us. She opened the door for Miss Emma to get into the back seat, and after shutting it, she leaned against the door to continue their conversation. I am sure they had been talking all day, but they still had things to talk about. This way is best, she said. Miss Emma may have nodded, but I am not sure. I refuse to look in the mirror at them. Anything else he need? Let me know, my aunt went on. They got plenty of old socks and shirts round the place. I think we're supposed to be there around two, I said, without looking back at them. I could feel both sets of eyes on the back of my neck. Tell him I'm praying, my aunt said. Y'all better go. I'll see you when I get back. She was talking to Miss Emma, not to me. She knew how I felt about the whole thing. I drove farther down the quarter and turned around. My aunt was standing where we had left her. She was waving now. You might have thought we were going to China instead of to the 13 miles to Bayonne. Driving along the St. Charles River, I could feel Miss Emma not looking at me, not looking at anything, just thinking. Maybe once or twice she glanced in my direction, but most of the time she was lost in thought. Like my aunt, she knew how much I hated all this. So the 13 miles to Bayonne were driven in silence. I didn't say anything to her. She didn't say anything to me. I never looked at her in the rearview mirror. I never turned my head to the river on my right or to the houses on the side of the road to my left. As far up the highway as you could see were stalks of sugar cane that had fallen off the trailers on their way to the mill. 
The people were gathering pecans on either side of the road, but I looked at them only from a distance. If they waved, I did not wave back. I didn't want Miss Emma to think for a moment that my mood had changed. The courthouse, like most of the public buildings in town, was made of red brick. Built around the turn of the century, it looked like a small castle you might see in the countryside somewhere in Europe. The parking lot that surrounded the courthouse was covered with crushed seashells. A statue of a Confederate soldier stood to the right of the walk that led up to the courthouse door. Above the head of the statue, national, state, and Confederate flags flew on long metal poles. The big clock on the tower struck two as I parked opposite the statue and the flags. It took Miss Emma a while to get out of the car, so by the time we came into the sheriff's office, the clock on the wall there said five after two. Two deputies, dressed in gray chinos and a colored prisoner in green coveralls with the letter P on the back, were in the office. The deputy behind the desk was giving the prisoner instructions. The younger deputy, who stood beside the desk, looked at us. I come to see Jefferson, Miss Emma said. The young deputy nodded to the deputy who was giving orders to the prisoners. It had something to do with the floor of the outside toilet. This toilet was for colored people who came to the courthouse, and it was down in the basement. You entered it from the courthouse parking lot. I had gone in there once or twice myself, but it was always filthy, and like everyone I knew, I tried to avoid going down there. But that was the only place to go. The toilets inside were for whites only. I want that done for I leave here, the deputy told the prisoner. I mean that, you hear? The prisoner, 15 or 16 years old, bowed his head and left. I come to see my boy, Jefferson, Miss Emma told the deputy behind the desk. What you got there? He asked her. Just some food, some clean clothes for him, Miss Emma said. Paul, the older man said. The deputy who stood beside the desk came toward us. How's he been? Miss Emma asked the deputy in charge. Quiet the deputy said. Yes, sir, Miss Emma said. The deputy grinned. Jefferson's been quiet, Paul, the young deputy, told Miss Emma. Thank you, sir, Miss Emma said to him. The deputy went through the basket of food, fried chicken, bread, baked sweet potatoes, tea cakes. Then he went through the handbag of clothes. There was a pair of old blue jeans, an old overwashed brown shirt, a pair of long johns and two pairs of my socks, which my aunt had given Miss Emma for Jefferson. Empty your pockets, he said to me. I had nothing but a wallet, a handkerchief, and some loose change. I had left my keys in the car. I laid the things on the desk. Is that it? the deputy asked me. He had brown hair and gray-blue eyes, and he appeared to be a couple of years younger than I was. He looked pretty decent. The one behind the desk didn't look decent at all. His eyes were the color of cement. He had a big neck and a fleshy and a fleshy face. He was much older and much heavier than Paul. Paul patted me down to see if I had taken everything out of my pockets. Then he told me that I could put my things back. Sheriff explained everything to y'all? The chief deputy asked us. Sir, Miss Emma said. The chief deputy could see that I didn't like him, and I could tell he didn't like me. 
but he knew who was in charge and that I would have to take anything he dished out. No knives, no forks, no plates. Pans, he said to Miss Emma. That was after he had looked at me a long time to let me know what he thought of me. No hat pins, no pocket knives, no razor blades, no ice picks, he said, looking at me again. Jefferson won't ever do nothing like that, Miss Emma said. You can't ever tell, the deputy said. Take them on up, Paul. Follow me, the young deputy said. We followed him down a long, dark corridor, passing offices with open doors and bathrooms for white ladies and white men. At the end of the corridor, we had to go up a set of stairs. The stairs were made of steel. There were six steps, then a landing, a sharp turn, and another six steps. Then we went through a heavy steel door to the area where the prisoners were quartered. The white prisoners were also on this floor, but in a separate section. I counted eight cells for black prisoners, with two bunks on each cell. Half of the cells were empty. The others had one or two prisoners. They reached their hands out between the bars and asked for cigarettes or money. Miss Emma stopped to talk to them. She told them she didn't have any money, but she had brought some food for Jefferson, and if there was anything left, she would give it to them. They asked me for money, and I gave them the change I had. There was an empty cell between Jefferson and the rest of the prisoners. He was at the end of his cell block and was lying on his bunk when we came up. The deputy unlocked the door for us and Miss Emma and I went in. The deputy told us he would have to lock us in and that he would return within an hour. Miss Emma thanked him and he locked the door and left. Jefferson still lay on his bunk, staring up at the ceiling. He didn't look at us once. How you feel, Jefferson? Miss Emma asked him. He didn't answer and kept his eyes on the ceiling. The cell was roughly six by ten with a metal bunk covered by a thin mattress and a wooden army blanket, a toilet without seat or toilet paper, a washbowl brownish from residue and grime, a small metal shelf upon which was a pan, a tin cup, and a tablespoon. A single light bulb hung over the center of the cell, and at the opposite end of the door was a barred window which looked out onto a sycamore tree behind the courthouse. I could see the sunlight on the upper leaves, but the window was too high to catch to catch sight of any of the other buildings or the ground. I come to see you and brung you something, Miss Emma said. We were standing because there was no place to sit. You been all right? she asked him. He lay there looking up at the ceiling. His hair had grown out since the trial, but I am sure he had not combed it once. I told myself that I would bring him a comb next time I came. I brought Professor Wiggins, Miss Emma said. I brought you some fried chicken, some good old yams, and I brought you some tea cakes, too. He looked up at the ceiling. Ain't you going to ask me to sit down, Jefferson? He looked up at the ceiling, but he wasn't seeing the ceiling. Miss Emma put the handbag of clothes and the basket of food on the floor and sat down on the bunk beside him. I should say that she sat as much as herself on the bunk as she could, about half, I would say. She passed her hand over his forehead and over his hair. Ain't you going to speak to me, Jefferson? She asked. He remained quiet. She stroked his hair again. You want to just talk to me? You want Professor Wiggins to leave? He didn't answer her. 
You want me to go and you just talk to Professor Wiggins? He still didn't answer. She looked up at me. She was ready to cry, and I wished I were somewhere else. Hand me that basket, Grant, she said. I passed her the basket, and she took out a piece of chicken wrapped in brown paper. She unwrapped the drumstick and held it before Jefferson. Look what I brought you, she said. I knowed how much you like my fried chicken. Brought you some yams and some tea cakes, too. Ain't you going to try some of it? It don't matter, I heard him say. He was looking up at the ceiling. What don't matter? He didn't answer. What don't matter, Jefferson? Nothing don't matter, he said, looking up at the ceiling, but not seeing the ceiling. It mattered to me, Jefferson, she said. You matter to me. He looked up at the ceiling, not seeing it. Jefferson? Chicken, dirt, it don't matter, he said. Yeah, it do, Jefferson. Yeah, it do. Dirt? All the same, he said. It don't matter. My chicken? She said. I'm tasting it right now. She took a small bite. You always liked my chicken every Sunday. He was quiet. You like a yam? She asked him. He didn't answer her. You want a tea cake? You don't have to eat no chicken if you don't want. You don't have to eat no old yam, neither, but I know how much you like my tea cakes. I didn't bring no cobbler, but Jefferson, when they gonna do it? Tomorrow? Do what, Jefferson? He was quiet, looking up at the ceiling, but not seeing it. What, Jefferson? He turned toward her. His body didn't turn, just his head turned a little. His eyes did most of the turning. He looked at her as though... He did not know who she was or what she was doing there. Then he looked at me. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? His eyes said. They were big brown eyes. The whites, too reddish. You know, don't you? His eyes said again. I looked back at him. My eyes would not dare answer him, but his eyes knew that my eyes knew. You with them? He asked me. With who? I said. His eyes mocked me. They were big brown eyes, and the whites were too reddish, and he had been thinking too much the past few weeks, and the eyes mocked me. You the one? He asked me. The one for what? I said. His big brown eyes with reddish whites mocked me. Gon' jerk that switch, he said, looking at me. What switch? Miss Emma said. He was looking at me, not at her. His eyes told me that I knew what switch he was talking about. That's Professor Wiggins, your teacher. What switch? She asked. He turned his head and began staring up at the ceiling again. The deputy came back and stood just outside the cell. Miss Emma still sat on the bunk. But now Jefferson had turned his back to her and was facing the great concrete wall. Miss Emma passed her hand over his hair again, then he pushed then she pushed herself up from the bunk. I'm leaving, Jefferson, she said. I'll come back soon. The deputy opened the opened the cell door to let us out. Can I leave the food? Miss Emma asked him. Sure, the deputy said. If he don't eat it all, can you give it to the rest of them children? Sure, the deputy said. He locked the cell door. 
I'm leaving Jefferson, Miss Emma said, looking back into the cell. He faced the gray concrete wall and didn't answer her. Oh, Lord Jesus, she cried. Oh, Lord Jesus, stand by, stand by. The deputy and I exchanged glances. With his eyes and a nod, he told me to put my arms around her, which I did. 10. Our next two visits went pretty much as the first one did. I picked up Miss Emma at her house at around 1.30. My aunt was always there with her, and after she had settled down into the back seat of the car, we drove in silence all the way into Bayonne. Each time we arrived five or ten minutes before the hour. The food was searched. I was asked to take everything out of my pockets, then told to put everything back into my pockets, and we were led down the narrow dark wood corridor, passing opened office doors where white men and white women carried on their daily routines. The deputy walked a step ahead of us, with Miss Emma directly behind him and me beside her. At the end of the corridor, we would climb the steps to the first landing, where the deputy would wait a minute to allow Miss Emma to catch her breath. Then we would continue up to the next floor and through the heavy steel door to the cell block. The prisoners would hear us coming, and they would stand at the cell doors with their hands stuck out between the bars. As she had done the first time, Miss Emma promised that they could have the food Jefferson did not eat. As I had done the first time, I gave them the change I had in my pockets, which was always less than a dollar. Then we would move down the line to the last cell. Jefferson always lay on the bunk, either looking at the ceiling or facing the wall. Each time, the deputy opened the door and locked us in. Jefferson had no more to talk about the second or third time than he did the first, and after we had spent an hour with him, we were let out. Each time, Miss Emma left the cell crying, and both times she told the young deputy to give the food to the other children. On Friday, our fourth visit, I left Irene Cole in charge of the school and instructed her to let the children go at three. If she felt that they had done all their schoolwork before three, she could dismiss them early because it was getting colder and most of the children would have work to do at home. I had to go down to my aunt's house to get my car, then I drove back up to the quarter to Miss Emma's. Usually she was waiting for me, but not today. I sat out there in the car a good five minutes, but no Miss Emma. I didn't want to blow the horn. I thought that might show impatience and disrespect, but still no Miss Emma. The door was shut, and the only thing to give the place any sign of life was a trickle of white smoke rising occasionally out of the chimney. After sitting out there another couple of minutes, I put patience and respect aside. I pressed on the horn hard and long enough for everybody in the quarter to hear it. I had given up my class to take her to Bayonne, and she was not ready, and I wanted them all to know about it. Finally, the door did open. My aunt came out on the porch and pushed the door shut behind her. She stood there watching me. I knew that stand. I knew that look. I knew that she was coming one step farther and that I would have to come to her. She was not coming one step farther and that I would have to come to her. She still watched me as I got out of the car and came up the walk. I stopped short of the porch. Something wrong with you? She asked me. I wanted to ask that same question about Miss Emma, but I held my tongue. Don't you know that if she was able, she would be out here? Then why didn't she tell me she wasn't going? 
I could be teaching my class. Nobody said you wasn't going. You're saying I'm supposed to visit him alone? He's no kin. Come on in here, boy, and get that bag, my aunt said. She watched me come up on the porch and go by her. Then she followed me into the house. Miss Emma was sitting at the fireplace in a rocking chair. She had on two sweaters, a black one and a green one. She had some kind of rag, possibly a baby's diaper, tied around her head. I stood in the center of the room near the hanging light bulb. I had the feeling that Miss Emma was not nearly as sick as she was pretending to be. For one thing, I had seen her that morning picking up chips in the yard, and she didn't look sick at all. And now I could smell fried chicken and baked potato, and I knew she could not have done all that if she was dying. My aunt sat down in the rocker next to Miss Emma. Now, both of them peered into the fireplace. At the two half-burned logs that gave about as much fire as a candle would, neither said a thing, as if they were sitting alone deep in thought. Then Miss Emma coughed twice, short and dry, to let me know that she was on her deathbed. Then silence again. There was smoke in the room, and I must have cleared my throat or something because my aunt used that moment to speak. That food waiting. I didn't know where the food was waiting for me. I didn't look for it. I just stood back looking at them. He don't have to go, Miss Emma said. She coughed again, reminding me that she was still on her deathbed. Not if it don't be a burden. My aunt looked back at me. I said that food waiting. Miss Emma's dying, but you can go with me, I said. I don't have on my good dress, my aunt said. I can wait, I said. No, you won't, she said. Don't force him, Miss Emma said. When I'm able to get on my feet, God willing, I'll get somebody else to take me up there. I don't want to be a burden on nobody. As I stood there listening to her, I realized that this had been planned from the beginning. All that other stuff I went through was to lead up to this day. Going up to Pichot's house, meeting the sheriff, the three visits to the jail with her. All that was nothing but preparation for today. Didn't she say it that first night at Pichot's? I'm old. My heart won't take it. I want somebody else to take my place. Didn't she say it? Sure she did, because it was planned even then. But she had help. My aunt. She coughed again, quick, dry, faked as before. I told myself that what she needed was more wood on the fire. I went to the corner of the room where the wood was stacked, and I piled as many logs on my arms as I could stand up with. Then I threw them into the fireplace. Sparks of fire shot across the hearth into the room, and smoke and ashes shot up the chimney. I brushed off my clothes and stood there until the wood had started burning. Can I do anything else, Miss Emma? I said. Maybe some cough syrup? You can watch your tongue, sir, my aunt said. I just want Miss Emma to get better, I said. He don't have to go, Miss Emma said. He's going, my aunt said. If it's a burden, Miss Emma said, maybe I'll go halfway, I said. Maybe I'll dump the food out there in the river. Fishes don't get much to eat in winter. Maybe they like fried chicken. You better get that food and get out of here if you know what's good for you, my aunt said. I went back into the kitchen and snatched the bag off the table. There was enough food in it to feed everybody in the jail. Everything you sent me to school for, you're stripping me of it, I told my aunt. 
they were looking at the fire, and I stood behind them with the bag of food. The humiliation I had to go through, going into that man's kitchen, the hours I had to wait while they ate and drank and socialized before they would even see me, now going up to that jail to watch them put their dirty hands on that food, to search my body each time as if I'm some kind of common criminal. Maybe today they'll want to look in my mouth or my nostrils or make me strip. Anything to humiliate me. All the things you wanted me to escape by going to school. Years ago, Professor Antoine told me that if I stayed here, they were going to break me down to the nigger I was born to be. But he didn't tell me that my aunt would help them to do it. She got up slowly, heavily, and went to Miss Emma, who had begun to shake her head and cry. Miss Emma sincerely did not want me to go, but my aunt had not changed her mind for a moment. I'm sorry, Mr. Grant. I'm helping them white people to humiliate you. I'm so sorry, and I wish they had somebody else who could turn to. Somebody else we could turn to, but they ain't nobody else. 11. The sheriff was in his office when I came into the courthouse. I could see him behind his desk, talking to another man who had just opened the door to leave. They talked a while longer, then the man came out into the corridor. I caught the door and went into the office with the bag of food. Help you? Guidry asked me. He sat with his cowboy boots propped up on the desk. He wore an open collar, light gray shirt, and dark gray pants. His necktie, his cowboy hat, and his coat hung on a rack by the file cabinet next to his desk. This was the first time he had been in his office since I started coming up here, but I didn't doubt that he knew who I was. I came to see Jefferson, I said. How y'all getting along? This will be my first time alone with him. What's in the basket? Food his nanan sends him. Paul? Deidre called while still looking at me. The young deputy came into the office from a side door. Called, Sheriff? Guidry nodded toward me. How you doing? The deputy asked. Fine. And yourself? I can't complain, he said. We went through the usual routine. I had to take everything out of my pockets and put it all back. The deputy went through all of the food, unwrapping one piece of chicken, checking it, putting it back. He unwrapped two or three pieces of candy, checked out the bag of sweet potatoes, then, finished, he wiped his hands on a pocket handkerchief. Still think you can get something into that head of his? Guidry spoke across the tips of those cowboy boots. I don't know, sir. Just remember what I said, Guidry said. Any sign of aggravation, I'll stop all this. I nodded my head. Then I remembered that I had to speak out. Yes, sir. He looked at me a while, then he nodded to the deputy, and we left the office. Since Miss Emma was not with us this time, I walked beside the deputy instead of behind him. We went by all the familiar open doors where people pecked on typewriters. We climbed the familiar stairs up to the big steel door that, left, that led onto the cell block. By now, I could probably have done this with my eyes shut. The prisoners came to the cell doors as before. If they were not the same ones, they were the same ages, in their late teens or early twenties. I gave them the change I had. Nobody got more than a dime. Two could put their money together and get a pack of cigarettes, or one could get a pack of gum and a candy bar. Jefferson sat on his bunk with his head bowed and his arms hanging down between his legs. 
The deputy opened the door for me to go in, and he reminded me that he would be back within the hour. In case I wanted to leave before then, I could call a trustee, and the trustee would come to get him. Jefferson, I said. He didn't look up. Your nana couldn't make it today, I said. She has a bad cold, but she sent you something. How are you feeling, Jefferson? After a while, he raised his head, but he didn't look at me. He looked at the barred window. From the cell, all you could see were the yellow leaves on the sycamore and the pale blue sky between the leaves. You hungry? I asked. You brought some corn? He said. Corn? That's what hogs eat, he said, turning his head now to look at me. He had not washed his face or combed his hair for days. He wore one of my old khaki shirts and a wrinkled pair of brown pants. He didn't have on shoes. They were stuck under the bunk. I didn't bring any corn, I said, and you're not a hog. He looked at me as if I was patronizing him. When was the last time you ate? I asked him. I don't know. Today? I asked him. I don't know. He was playing with me and I knew it. Some chicken in there, I said biscuits and sweet potatoes. Even some candy she made. You ought to try it. It'll make her happy. Hogs don't eat no candy, he said. You're not a hog. I said, you're a man. He grunted deep in his throat and grinned at me. Mind if I have a piece of your chicken? I asked him. I left before dinner. He acted as though he had not heard me. Since the deputy had already gone through the paper bag, I didn't have to do much unwrapping to get to the food. I took out a drumstick and a biscuit and started eating. Your nanan sure can cook, I said. That's for youngins, he said. You're a human being, Jefferson, I said. I'm an old hog, he said. Yeomans don't eat in no stall like this. I'm an old hog they fattening up to kill. That would hurt your nanan if she heard you say that. You want me to tell her you said that? Old hog don't care what people say. She cares, I said. And I do too, Jefferson. Y'all yeomans, he said. You're a human being too, Jefferson. I'm an old hog, he said more to himself than to me. Just a old hog they fattening up to kill for Christmas. You're a human being, Jefferson. You're a man. He kept his eyes on me as he got up from the bunk. I'm going to show you how an old, old hog eat, he said. He knelt down on the floor and put his head inside the bag and started eating without using his hands. He even sounded like a hog. I stood back watching him while I continued to eat the biscuit and piece of chicken. That's how an old hog eat, he said, raising his head and grinning at me. He got up from his knees and went back to his bunk. That's how an old hog eat. All right, I said. But when I go back, I'm going to tell her that you and I sat on the bunk and ate. And you said how good the food was. I won't tell her what you did. She's already sick and that would kill her. So I'm going to lie. I'm going to tell her how much you liked the food, especially the pralines. He said nothing. He just grinned at me. Are you trying to hurt me, Jefferson? I asked him. Are you trying to make me feel guilty for, for your being here? You don't want me to come back here anymore? His expression didn't change, as though someone had chiseled that painful, cynical grin on his face. 
that man out there doesn't want me to come up here either, I told him. He said, I will never be able to make you understand anything. He said, I'm just wasting my time coming up here now. But your Nana doesn't think so. She wants me to come up here. She wants us to talk. What do you want? You want me to stay away and let him win? The white man? You want him to win? His expression remained the same, cynical, defiant, painful. I could not think of anything else to say to him. But since I had been there less than half an hour, I knew it was too early to call for the deputy. The sheriff would have known that Jefferson and I were not getting along, and that was the last thing I could afford, at least for Miss Emma's sake. The rest of the hour just dragged along. Jefferson was not looking at me any more. He had lain back down on the bunk, facing the wall. I gazed out the window at the yellow leaves on the sycamore tree. The leaves were as still as if they were painted there. Between the leaves, I could see bits of pale blue sky. I looked at Jefferson with his back to me. I looked at his pair of laceless shoes under the bunk. I looked down at the bag of food, trying to remember how many pieces of chicken, biscuits, potatoes, or pieces of candy were still in there. I went to the wash bowl and got a handful of water to drink. I tried turning the faucet off completely, but it continued to drip. The water had left a brown stain from the top of the bowl to the drain. I turned to Jefferson again. He was facing the wall, his back to me. I wanted to ask him what he was thinking about. When I heard the deputy come down the cell block, I went to the bunk. Anything you want me to tell your nanan? I asked him. He didn't answer. His eyes were open and staring at the wall. I'll tell her how much you enjoy the food, I said. That would make her happy. The deputy came up to the cell and let me out. Y'all doing all right? He asked as we walked away. He was glad to get some home cooking, I said. I can't blame him for that, the deputy said. Twelve. I knew Miss Emma expected me to come back and tell her all about Jefferson, but I had not thought of a good lie yet. I couldn't go there and tell her what had actually happened. That would have hurt her too much. I couldn't go there and say that we had a good talk. She probably wouldn't have believed it, not after the way he had acted when we were there together. I needed time to think, to think of something. Not a big lie, just a little lie or a number of little lies, but a lie it had to be. Maybe I could tell her he was concerned about her health. She would like that. Maybe I could tell her that he had begun to use the brush and comb I had bought for him. Or maybe I could say that the deputy had told me what a good prisoner he was and that the sheriff himself had said he was a good boy. I needed time, time to get my lies straight, and the best place for that was at the Rainbow. I got into my car and drove back of town. The Rainbow Club was quiet, dark and quiet. There were only two men in the place beside Joe Claiborne, who was, who was behind the bar. All three stood talking baseball, Jackie Robinson. Robinson had just finished his second year with the Brooklyn Dodgers. What's happening, Prof? Claiborne said to me. Hey, Jax, I said. He brought a bottle of beer to me. A little business in town, I said. Claiborne could see that I didn't want to talk about the business, or maybe he realized what the business was. He nodded his head and went back down to the bar where the other customers were. 
The two old men had continued their conversation, and Claiborne joined them again as if he had never left. From where I stood, about halfway down the bar, all I could hear was Jackie this and Jackie that. Nothing about any of the other players, nothing about the Brooklyn Dodgers as a team, only Jackie, Jackie this and Jackie that. I sipped my beer slowly while listening to them, and they were very good. They could recall everything Jackie had done in the past two years. They remembered when he got his first hit and who it was against. They remembered the first time he stole two bases in one game and the first time he stole home. One of the men backed away from the bar to demonstrate how slow the pitcher was in throwing the ball, which gave Jackie the opportunity to steal home plate. The old man looked over each shoulder, the way pitchers do when there are runners on bases. He raised his leg as high as he could, which was only about a foot off the floor, to show how much time the pitcher took to throw the ball to the plate. While the pitcher, while the pitcher went through the motion of raising his leg and winding his arm, Jackie was on his way home. Now the old man became Jackie, not running, but showing the motion of someone running at full speed. His arms were doing what the legs could not do. He showed you the motion of Jackie sliding into home plate, the motion of the umpire calling Jackie safe, and the motion of the and the motion of Jackie brushing off his clothes and going into the dugout. The old man nodded his head emphatically with great pride and went back to the bar. Claiborne and the other old man told him that he was exactly right. Listening to them, I could remember back to the time before Jackie came to the major leagues when it was Joe Lewis that everyone talked about. Yes, I could remember. I could remember when he was the only one, especially the big fight with Schmeling, that German. I could still remember how depressed everyone was after Joe lost the fight with Schmeling. For weeks it was like that. To be caught laughing for any reason seemed like a sin. This was a period of mourning. What else in the world was there to be proud of if Joe had lost? Even the preacher got into it. Let us wait. Let us wait, children. David will meet Goliath again, and everyone told everyone else, they will meet again, just wait. And we waited and waited, and finally the big fight did come. There were two radios in the quarter, one at the Williams house down the quarter, another at McVeigh's up on the quarter. I was down the quarter. I was 17 then. I was not the youngest, surely not the oldest. I was just one, praying and hoping for the only hero we knew. There was much noise, much talking while the people waited for the fight to begin. Once the announcer said the fighters were in the ring, everyone became silent without anybody having to tell them to do so. There were small children there too, but even they had quit playing and were silent. We held our breath, remembering the first fight, could God let it happen again? Would he let it happen again? Then it was over, and there was nothing but chaos. People screamed. Some shot pistols in the air. There were mock fights. All men fell down on the floor, as Schmeling did, and had to be helped up. Everybody laughed. Everybody patted everybody else on the back. For days after the fight, for weeks, we held our heads high, higher than any people on earth had ever done for any reason. I was only 17 then, but I could remember it, every bit of it. The warm evening, the people, the noise, the pride I saw in those faces. Now, while I stood there listening to the old men and their praise of Jackie Robinson, I remembered something else. 
the little Irishman. I was at the university then. The little Irishman was giving a series of lectures at white universities, but some way or another, our university got him to visit us. How? Only God knows, but we all gathered in the auditorium, and there stood this little white man with the thick accent talking to us about Irish literature. He spoke of Yeats, O'Casey, Joyce, names I had never heard before. I sat there listening, listening, trying to remember everything he said, and the name he repeated over and over was Parnell, and he told us how some Irishman would weep this day at the mention of the name Parnell. Parnell, Parnell, Parnell. Then he spoke of James Joyce. He told about Joyce's family, his religion, his education, his writing. He spoke of a book called Dubliners and a story in the book titled Ivy Day in the Committee Room. Regardless of race, regardless of class, that story was universal, he said. For days after the lecture, I tried to find that book but it was not in our library and not in any of the bookstores. I went to Mr. Anderson, my literature teacher, and asked him if he knew how I could get a copy. He said he would see what he could do. A week later, he kept me after class and handed me a collection of stories. It was not Joyce's Dubliners, but an anthology of short stories with Ivy Day in the committee room included as one of them. Mr. Anderson had gotten a professor at the White University to check the book out of his library for him. He's a pretty decent fellow, Mr. Anderson said about the white professor. Some of them are, you know, and always remember that. Now, take care of that book. You can keep it a week, and it had better come back to me in the same condition in which, in which it left. Do you understand, Wiggins? I read the story and reread the story, but I still could not find the universality that the little Irishman had spoken of. All I saw in the story was some Irishman meeting in a room and talking about politics. What had that to do with America, especially my people? It was not until years later that I saw what he meant. I had gone to bars, to barber shops, I had stood on street corners, and I had gone to many suppers there in the quarter, but I had never really listened to what was being said. Then I began to listen to listen closely to how they talked about their heroes, how they talked about the dead and how great the dead had once been. I heard it everywhere. The old men down at the end of the bar were still talking about Jackie Robinson, but I was not thinking about Jackie now or Joe Lewis or the little Irishman. I was thinking about the cold, depressing cell uptown. I raised my hand for Claiborne to bring me another beer. He gave me the bottle and looked into my eyes, and he could tell that I didn't feel like talking. So he went back down the bar to where the old men were still talking baseball. I didn't want to think about that cell uptown. I, I didn't even want to think about Miss Emma and the lies I had to tell her. I wanted to think about more pleasant things. I thought about Vivian. Now, there was not a more pleasant thing in the world to think about. Today was Friday, wasn't it? And wouldn't it be nice if the two of us could go somewhere and spend the entire weekend? Wouldn't that be nice? I would be able to forget the whole thing, the whole thing for at least a couple of days. Damn it, it would be so good if we could get away and never come back. I knew I could find a job doing something else, and so could she. If we could just get the hell away from here, just go away. The old man down the bar mentioned, continued to hit the ball 
throw the ball and slide into bases, and my mind went back to that cell uptown, then to another cell somewhere in Florida. After reading about the execution there, I had dreamed about it over and over and over. As vividly as if I were there, I had seen that cell, heard that boy crying while being dragged to that chair. Please, Joe Lewis, help me! Please help me! Help me! And after he had been strapped into the chair, the man who wrote the story could still hear him cry, Mr. Joe Lewis, help me! Mr. Joe Lewis, help me! And down the bar, the old men went on hitting the ball, running the bases and sliding home. And I wondered if the one in that cell uptown would call on Jackie Robinson as the other one had called on Joe Lewis. Taking off, Prof? Claiborne asked me. I have to find my lady, I said. Take it easy, Prof. I waved my hand to the old men. They nodded to me. The school was three or four blocks away on the main street, but everything back here was pretty close to everything else. The school was on the same street as the Catholic Church, the movie theater, the mortuary, a cafe, and the ice cream parlor. The grocery store was not far from the church, but on another street. The barber shop and the gas station weren't too far away from the mortuary. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody else's business. I parked in front of the movie theater and watched one of the teachers direct the children onto the school bus. When the bus drove away, I got out of my car. What's happening, handsome? The teacher said. What's going on, Peggy? Thank God it's Friday, she said. She's still inside. Having a drink later? A couple, Peggy said. As we walked up to the entrance of the school, I saw two boys taking in the flag. Peggy told me she would see us at the club later, and I went to Vivian's classroom. The school had only five rooms, and in some of the and some of the classes were doubled. Vivian taught the sixth and seventh grades. The children had all gone, and she sat behind her desk, looking over papers. She wore a brown woolen suit and a white blouse. She didn't raise her head until I was near the desk. Then she smiled. She had the most beautiful and most even teeth I had ever seen, but I thought every bit of her was perfect. What are you doing here? She asked. You ever know a Friday I could stay away from you? I went around the desk and kissed her. Last boy stood at his desk. Wouldn't dare do that, she said. I better not even catch anyone else doing it, I said. What are you doing here? She asked. To see you, what else? She looked up at me and she could read my face and she knew that I had been at the jail. Still working? I asked. Nothing. I can't do later. I saw Peggy. They were going over for a drink. Sounds like a good idea, Vivian said. She put some papers into a briefcase and stood up. I have to see the principal before she leaves. Do you know how to clean a blackboard? I've done a few. If you do a good job, I'll give you an apple, she said. Thanks, teacher. She kissed me lightly on the lips and walked away. At the door, she looked back and smiled again. A vertical line had been drawn down the blackboard. On one side of the line were French sentences. On the other side, English translations. They were simple sentences. Where is the book? Where is the tablet? Where is the pencil? I wiped both halves clean, but you could still see the imprint of the sentences. I drew another vertical line, and on one side I wrote, 
je t'aime, je t'aime, je t'aime. And on the other side, I wrote, I love you, I love you, I love you. Vivian came back into the room and saw what I had done. You naughty boy, she said. Suppose Daisy sees that. Doesn't she already know? I ought to make you stand in the corner on one foot. If you stood there with me, I wouldn't mind. Naughty, naughty boy, she said. Erase that. Only if you kiss me first. She had picked up the briefcase and I took it from her and laid it on the desk and I pulled her into my arms. Let's go somewhere, just the two of us, I said after kissing her. Let's go somewhere and spend the night. Baton Rouge, New Orleans, anywhere. My babies, she said. Dora will look after them. Come on, let's go somewhere. We're having a drink with Peggy, remember? Let's forget Peggy and everybody else. Let's go somewhere. I could see that for a moment she was thinking about it. Then she shook her head. No, she said. I can't take that chance. Don't you want to? More than anything. Then let's take the chance. No, she said. I can't give him an excuse to take my babies. You think he would? I don't know. I can't take that risk. I hate going to Robert and Helen's, then leaving in the middle of the night. I hate it too, she said. But staying overnight somewhere, I, I can't take that chance. Where is he now? Last I heard, in Houston. When's he coming back? I don't know. Until he makes up his mind, we just do nothing. I thought we did a lot. You know what I mean. Come on, let's go find Peggy and Peggy and them and have a drink. Not until I get another kiss. What is the matter? She said after we had kissed. Maybe it was the way I held her. Maybe it was the look in my face. I told her what had happened at the jail, how Jefferson had gotten down on his knees to eat the food out of the paper bag. I saw her frown and she brought up her hand to her mouth. I have to go back to that old woman. But I couldn't go back then. I couldn't face her. I needed some time to think of a lie to tell her. With her, with her hand still over her mouth, Vivian was looking at me. I wish I could just run away from this place. Vivian shook her head. You know you can't. Why not? For the same reason you haven't done it yet. I've wanted to, but you haven't. Why? You know the answer yourself, Grant. You love them more than you hate this place. Is it love or cowardice? Afraid to take a chance out there. You have your folks in California. You can always go to them. I have thought about it many times. Sure, she said. You even did it once, but you came back. This is all we have, Grant. I want more. I turned away from her and erased the blackboard. Well, let's go have that drink, I said. Wait, Vivian said. She went up to the board and wrote in large letters, Je t'aime toujours, je t'aime toujours, je t'aime toujours. And I suppose, and suppose old Daisy comes in before you get back on Monday. She already knows about it, Vivian said. She do all the rest, teachers and students. 13. Not long after the second bell rang at the church, I heard Miss Eloise Bowie out in the road, calling my aunt. I went onto the porch and told her that my aunt was in the back. Miss Eloise, tall and thin, stood in the road, leaning on her bamboo walking stick. She wore a long black overcoat and a black hat with a white band. She was looking up the quarter. 
She said she thought there was a new chill in the air, and I agreed with her. While she waited for my aunt, she continued to look up the quarter toward the church, but I didn't feel like standing out on the porch, but I thought it would be rude to go inside and leave her in the road with no one to talk to. I heard my aunt come into the house from the backyard. She was in her room only a moment before she walked out onto the porch. She wore the black coat over a black dress, white stockings, and low-heeled black shoes. Hey there, Elu, she called. Hey, Miss Eloise called back. She really stretched it out, though. Hey! Ain't been waiting too long, I hope, my aunt said. Just getting here, Miss Eloise said. Be sure you shut them doors if you leave from here, my aunt said to me. She was already halfway down the steps when she said it. She had not looked at me. Years ago, she had quit looking at me when she was on her way to church. When I came back from the university, I told her that I didn't believe anymore and I didn't want her to try forcing it on me. If she did, I told her, then I would have to look for some other place to live. She didn't want me to leave, so she let me alone. Only occasionally, when she had some other church member at the house, she would bring it up. Even then, she wouldn't press it too far. She and Miss Eloise darted up the quarter, one tall and slim, the other short and much heavier. They stopped in front of Miss Emma's house, and I heard my aunt calling her. Emma! Hey there, Emma! Miss Emma came out of the house, and the three of them continued on up to the church together. I went back inside. I had started correcting papers a couple of hours earlier, but I hadn't done very much. On Sunday, my aunt began getting ready for church as soon as she woke up, which was around six o'clock. Until 11 o'clock, there was nothing I could do but listen to her singing her termination song. Determination Sunday was the third Sunday of each month when members of the church would stand and sing their favorite hymns and tell the congregation where they were determined to spend eternity. My aunt started warming up at six in the morning, whether it was Termination Sunday or not, and didn't quit until 11 when she walked out of the house so I would be forced to put away the work until after she had gone, or I would go for a walk through the quarter and back into the field. I sat at my table trying to correct papers, but my mind kept drifting back to Friday. It had been dark when I returned to the quarter from Bayonne. It was colder, too. I could see sparks of fire rising out of chimneys. When I stopped in front of Miss Emma's house, Pharrell Giraud, who lived across the road, told me she had gone to my aunt's house. I said goodnight to him and went down the quarter. I recognized Reverend Ambrose's car parked before the door. Now I felt a little guilty for getting back so late. The three of them were in the kitchen drinking coffee, Reverend Ambrose, Miss Emma, and my aunt. They were quiet, sitting in semi-darkness. The only light in the kitchen came from the open door of the stove. No one looked around when I came in, and Reverend Ambrose and Miss Emma barely answered when I spoke their names. My aunt was completely silent. I went to the icebox and took out a pitcher of water, and while I poured a glassful, I looked at the three of them at the table. They were quiet, not even drinking their coffee now. I'll be in my room, I said to my aunt. That's all you got to say? She snapped at me. I spoke, Tante Lou. You know what I'm talking about. He was all right, I said. That's all, my aunt said. Or did you forget to go? I went and he was all right, I said. You got more than that to say, Mr. Man, my aunt said. 
Folks been sitting here hours waiting for you. I see you recovered from your cold, Miss Emma. I'm glad it wasn't too. Sit down, my aunt said. I went around the table and pulled out the fourth chair. He was all right, I said. My aunt looked at me. Reverend Ambrose and Miss Emma stared out into the yard. That's not what she wants to hear, my aunt said. How he was when you got there. How he was when you left. He was all right both times, I said. You know what I'm talking about, my aunt said. She looked at me the way an inquisitor must have glared at his poor victims. The only reason she didn't put me on the rack was that she didn't have one. We both ate some of the food and we talked, I said. All this time, Miss Emma had been gazing into the yard. Now she looked at me, no, toward me. Her thoughts were far distant. He ate some. I said, y'all talked? Her mind was still far away. A little, I said. Now her focus became closer, much closer. She was looking at me now. What y'all talk about? Different things. I told him you didn't come to see him because you had a cold. She looked at me, waiting to hear his answer, but I couldn't think of another lie, so I shifted to something else. Then I asked him how he was getting along. He said he was all right. The deputy had already told me he was okay. Guidry was in the office today. He said that Jefferson was getting along fine, didn't cause any trouble. He is using that comb and brush I bought for him, and he was wearing one of my shirts, the khaki one. I think he's doing okay. Miss Emma and my aunt both studied me. Miss Emma wanted to believe what I was saying, but I could see she had doubts. My aunt still wanted to put me on the rack and Reverend Ambrose continued to look out into the darkness. What else y'all talked about, my aunt said. You left from here for one thirty. I can't remember everything we talked about, I said. We just talked. More than five hours and you can't remember nothing else? I was with him for an hour and then I went back of town. I have a girl back of town. I like to see her sometime. And maybe that's where you spent all your time. If you don't think I went to the jail, you can always go up there and ask them. I didn't ask for none of your uppity, mister. I don't mean to be uppity, I told her. I'm just telling you the truth. I spent an hour with him. I had a drumstick and a biscuit, and he said something. I can't remember exactly what it was. Then we talked. Then I left and went back of town. Exactly what I did. Deep in you, what you think? Reverend Ambrose suddenly turned from looking out into the darkness. Deep in you? About what, Reverend? Him. What's he thinking? What's he thinking deep in him? Deep in you, what you think? Who knows what somebody else is thinking? They say one thing, they may be thinking about something else. Who can tell? You the teacher, my aunt said, not so kindly. Deep in you, Reverend Ambrose said. Deep in you, you think he know? He, he then grasped the significance of, of what this is all about deep in you? The significance, the gravity. The gravity? Reverend Mose Ambrose was a short, very dark man whose face, was whose face and bald head were always shining. He was the plantation church's pastor. He was not educated, hadn't gone to any theological school. He had heard the voice and started preaching. He was a simple, devoted believer. He christened babies, baptized youths, visited those who were ill, counseled those who had trouble, preached and buried the dead. 
All these things could be simply accomplished. But when it came to a discussion with a teacher, though, he had known that the teacher since his birth, though he had known the teacher since his birth, then suddenly things were not so simple. His soul, he said. I don't know anything about the soul, Reverend Ambrose. I baptized him, Reverend Ambrose said. He was 11 or 12 then, but like so many others, he didn't keep the faith either, like yourself. He stared at me as though I was one of the worst of sinners. Maybe I was. Backsliders were usually worse than those who had never been converted. At least that is what people like him tried to make you believe. Y'all talked about God? He asked me. No, sir. We didn't get around to that. Didn't get around to God? No, sir. He looked at me and nodded his head. If we didn't talk about God, then what else on earth was important enough to talk about to someone who was about to meet God? I figured that's where you came in, Reverend. There's enough room for both of us, I can tell you that. Me, Sister Emma, Sister Lou, going up there Monday, he said. Anything I ought to take him? Food, I suppose. Maybe some clean clothes. I can't think of anything else. I was thinking more about the Bible, Reverend Ambrose said. That would be nice, too, I said. Reverend Ambrose did not have any more to say. He and my aunt continued to stare at me until I excused myself and left the table. Now, on Sunday, as I sat at the table trying to do my work, I could hear them singing in the church. It seemed that I had listened to this singing and their praying every Sunday of my life. No, I had done more than just listened. I participated until my last year at the university. There was no one thing that changed my faith. I suppose it was a combination of many things, but mostly it was just plain studying. I did not have time for anything else. Many times I would not come home on weekends, and when I did, I found that I cared less and less about the church. Of course, it pained my aunt to see this change in me, and it saddened me to see the pain I was causing her. I thought many times about leaving, as Professor Antoine had, had advised me to do. My mother and father also told me that if I was not happy in Louisiana, I should come to California. After visiting them the summer following my junior year at the university, I came back, which pleased my aunt, but I had been running in place ever since, unable to accept what used to be my life, unable to leave it. I pushed away the papers and listened to the singing. Miss Eloise was singing her termination song. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You could hear that high, shrill voice all over the plantation. I had been hearing it all my life, all my life. After her, there would be someone else, then someone else. It would go on and on for three or four hours, and it was impossible to do anything but listen to it or leave. I thought I heard a car stop before the door, but I didn't leave the table. Then I thought I heard someone come onto the porch, and when I looked up, I saw her standing in the doorway, but I did not believe it was she because she had never come here before. She wore a blue blazer and a maroon pleated skirt. A black patent leather purse hung from her right shoulder. I hope you don't mind. Only if I'm dreaming. She smiled and came into the room. Thank you for listening to part two of Ernest J. Gaines' A Lesson Before Dying here at Carla Reads the Classics. I really appreciate it. And I hope that you will come back on Saturday for the final part three of this wonderful novel. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. <laughs>